0: All right, well, it is definitely good to be with you. Um, And as we begin today, uh, I just want to thank you for your continued prayers. Um, God is truly faithful, and he does give us great blessings. And what a wonderful testimony is there of John Newton. And if I could recommend one thing to you. If you have not already seen the film Amazing Grace, which chronicles both the stories of William Wilberforce and John Newton, I would encourage you to do so. I was very um, excited that it got a Hollywood budget and Hollywood funding and backing, and yet was true to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so it was a very well-done film. And one of my favorite parts in the film uh, that still sticks in my mind to this day is uh, a part toward the end of John Newton's life when he said, when he said, there's two things I know for sure. Um, I am a great sinner and I have a great Savior. And... That really sums it up for those of us who are true believers, does it not? That we know that we are great sinners and yet have a great Savior. Paul, as he got closer to his home going, his opinion of himself went down. In in the earlier part of his ministry, he said, I'm the least of all the apostles. And in the last epistle which he wrote, to Timothy, he said, "This is a true saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief." And that really is that really is a key to understanding anything else about the Christian life, is understanding where we stand in Christ, and where we have stood without Him. Alright, well, if you have your Bibles with you, if you could turn to Luke chapter 8. We're starting in verse 40 today. We'll finish up Luke chapter 8 this morning. And uh, I hope that we will all be blessed as we dig into the Word of God. Um, We're going to see a ruler... Come to Jesus for help, and we're going to see that even as Jesus is going to help this ruler, that he is able to heal someone on the way. Let's look first of all at Luke eight forty to 46. And it came to pass when Jesus returned, the people gladly received him, for they were all waiting for him. And behold, there came a man named Jairus, and he was a ruler of the synagogue, and he fell down at Jesus' feet, and besought him that he would come to his house. For he had only one daughter, about twelve years of age, and she lay a-dying. But as he went, the people thronged him. And a woman having an issue of blood twelve years, which had spent all her living upon physicians, neither could be healed of any, came behind him and touched the border of his garment, and immediately her issue of, of blood snatched. Stanched. And Jesus said, Who touched me? When all denied, Peter and they that were with him said, Master, the multitude throng thee and press thee, and saith thou, Who touched me? Now as we start out looking at this passage, um, Again, he's coming off from this experience with the man of the Gadarenes who said, after he was healed of the demons, he said, Lord, let me follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said, go and serve your family and tell them what great things God has done to you. So this is what he's coming off. And then Jesus returns from where he was and the people gladly receive him and they're waiting for him it's interesting how Jesus' popularity was so great when he didn't have uh, the modern amenities that we have today he didn't have social media I don't even know if they had printed newspapers they might have had some kind of um, papyrus news, I don't know but one way or another, Jesus' popularity was such that it followed him wherever he went, um, whether he uh, wanted things broadcast or not. And we'll, we'll see an interesting uh, statement that he makes toward the end of our message today about how he wants people to react to this miracle. And I still don't have an exact answer on it. So I'll be interested to hear if anybody does after the service. But, uh, so Jesus is walking along and a man came who was a ruler of the synagogue and fell down at Jesus' feet. Now, it's interesting here that this in itself is a testament to Jesus' deity. Because Jesus does not say to this man, get up off your feet. He doesn't say that. In the book of Revelation, John falls at his feet. John falls at the feet of an angel. And the angel says to him, stand up, for I'm not worthy to be worshipped. This doesn't happen here. Why? Because Jesus is worthy for us to fall at his feet and to worship him. And the book of Revelation says that when John beheld Jesus, that he fell at his feet as dead. So, I think before I stand before the Lord, I will probably do something similar. But it says, for he had only one daughter about twelve years of age, and she lay a dying. But as he went, the people thronged him. And I also find this interesting because there are some cases where Jesus will say to someone who asks for healing for someone that they love, they are well, go your way. But it's so nice to know that Jesus meets people where they are. And for this man, Jairus, it was a significant enough act of sacrifice and faith just to ask him to come to his house because the Jewish leaders, for the most part, they detested Jesus. So the fact that this man was willing to be seen with Jesus in his house was a great testament of faith in itself, even though... He didn't just ask him to speak the words. But the people thronged him. And a woman, having an issue of blood twelve years, which had spent all her living upon physicians, neither could be healed of any, came behind him and touched the border of his garment, and immediately her issue of blood stanched. And Jesus said, Who touched me? When all denied, Peter and they which were with him said, Master, the multitude thronged thee and pressed thee, and saith thou, Who touched me? This is pretty significant here. This once again shows the attention of Jesus to the very details of every person's life. In some way, which I do not comprehend, and will never fully comprehend on this earth. When I stand before the Lord, I believe that I will have a personal audience with Jesus Christ, even though He has billions of followers throughout the whole earth. And there will be billions of people who are among the chosen, the saved, from every tribe and kindred. I will still have individual attention from my Lord and Savior. Why? Because he pays attention to every single person. All the hairs of our head are numbered. And so as, as busy as this throng is, as many people as are here, he says, who touched me? And he's not talking about just jolting him in the crowd. Obviously, many people were touching him. But when this lady touched him... She had the faith to believe she could be healed. And power went forth from him. Think about this. The very one whose whose mouth spoke into existence the galaxies of the world is standing on the road and gets touched by this woman Who is in desperate need. And power goes forth. And she is healed. And Jesus said somebody had touched me. For I perceive that virtue is gone out of me. So even though all this great crowd had thronged Jesus. He felt the touch of this woman. There's a lot of things we can draw from this, but the one encouragement I I want to bring to you today from this picture is that no one is insignificant in God's economy. If you are here today, God brought you here by His divine intervention. You may think, that you got up and made a decision to be here today. And it very well may be that you did. But truly, God, to borrow from Benjamin Franklin, governs in the affairs of men. Paul said it's in him we live and move and have our being. And so... I really think that, oh, I know that God knew what was going to happen on that road. And it kind of shows us about divine interruptions, too, because from a human standpoint, we might say, well, that's interrupting the schedule. The schedule is, or the the process is, that he's going to this ruler's house to heal his daughter because he's something great. At least maybe that's what the people thought. But Jesus didn't see this as an, as an interruption. In fact, he knew that that lady was going to be there, and he chose to heal her. And it also says that she spent all of her money on physicians. Now, doctors are not bad. I think sometimes we can, as people of extremes, we, go, we can go too far from one extreme to another, And we say, well, if you're right with God, you can be healed of everything and you shouldn't struggle with pain. And then we also can go so far as I believe it was Asa who was diseased in his feet and he sought the physicians, but he didn't seek the Lord. So you can go far in each of these directions. And I just thought of this cross-reference in uh, Proverbs 8.34, kind of talking about the people thronging him. Now, they weren't necessarily thronging him for the right reasons, but it kind of typifies what our attitude should be toward Jesus. It says, Blessed is the man that heareth me, watching daily at my gates, waiting at the posts of my doors. The people were waiting for Jesus. Do we have that attitude? Are we waiting for Jesus? Okay, so now, we'll look at Luke 8, 47-49 to, to continue our narrative here in the book of Luke. And when the woman, this is the woman that was healed from her issue of blood, when the woman saw that she was not hid, she came trembling and falling down before him. She declared unto him before all the people for what cause she had touched him and how she was healed immediately. And he said unto her, Daughter, be of good comfort. Thy faith hath made thee whole. Go in peace. While he yet spake, there cometh one from the ruler of the synagogue's house, saying to him, Thy daughter is dead. Trouble not the master. Now, again, there's a couple things I want to point out here. First of all, we may be persuaded of the wrong idea that this could promote a works salvation, that she was healed because she touched the hem of Jesus' garment. But it's significant here when Jesus says in verse 48, Daughter, be of good comfort. Thy faith has made you whole. She was healed because of her faith in Jesus. Now, it may have been an imperfect faith, but which one of us can say that we have perfect faith in Jesus? We all struggle with faith. But God takes the faith that we have and He grows it through the Christian experience. He grows it through our lives. We start out as babies. And Peter says, as newborn babes desire the pure milk of the Word that you may grow thereby. And then he gets frust- Paul gets frustrated with the Corinthian believers because he said, I'm still giving you milk. But you should be ready to digest meat. And later on, we read about the meat of the Word. And how important it is to grasp the meat of the Word. And this is something that's very important to me in my ministry that I help people get to the place where they are eating the meat of the Word, where they're able to tackle tough things. We have this trend in our churches today that says that we should be seeker friendly. And I think we spend too much time on the milk of the word because we want to reach people for the gospel, which is not a bad thing. But the word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword. We don't need to water it down to get the truth across. And we don't need to water it down in the hopes that people will come through our doors. Because if we're watering down the message and we have thousands of people in the pews. What good is it if at the end of the day they're not hearing the truth that will set them free? Well, yet spake, there cometh one from the ruler of the synagogue's house, saying to him, thy daughter is dead. Trouble not the master. How many times have you felt like you were at the end of your rope? That God... See, the, the, the way that we think about it in human terms is there's nothing that could possibly change this. God has to intervene. And surely that is true. But so often we think of prayer and God's work as a last resort when it really should be the first resort should be the first place we go but often God has to bring us to that place where there's nothing I remember in in my spiritual life hitting a rock bottom point at the age of 13 after my brother died where there was nothing worth living for where I couldn't do it myself, where I didn't even want to get up every day, where I didn't want to go to church. And that's when God said, that's because it's about me. It's not about you. It is I. It is me that worketh in you to will willing to do of my good pleasure. It's not about you. Because you will fail. Because you are weak. And I have the privilege of realizing that I'm physically weak, which reminds me daily of my spiritual weakness. Some people say that God is a God of love and He doesn't want to break us. And He doesn't want to do that, but sometimes when we don't hear the still small voice, He gets out the two by four because He needs to. It says in Hebrews, Despise not the chastening of the Lord, for whom the Lord loves, He chasteneth. And at the end of all, human hope and understanding is when hope comes. I'm sure many people didn't think that Paul would ever come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. He had killed their friend Stephen. They didn't want to believe him when he came to them and said, I've been redeemed by the Lord. And Barnabas had to come and he had to say, This is real. Paul is one of us. I'm sure there were some that had Paul on their prayer list, but there were others that said there's no way he's going to be saved. I have an uncle in particular and some other people as well that sometimes it seems like they will never be saved. And maybe they won't because everybody has to make a choice before God. But if God can save the Apostle Paul, if God can save John Newton, then God can save anyone. And if you are outside of his family today, if you have not been redeemed, if you think that you've done something too bad to be saved, my encouragement to you is: the only thing that will never be saved—you will never be saved from—is an ultimate rejection of God's gift of grace on the cross of Calvary. Isaiah said it this way: He said, "Come, let us reason together, though your sins be as scarlet." They will be white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. That's the choice. And often when I feel at the most, particularly in my life, financial need, God comes through in a major way and shows me that I didn't need to be as concerned as I was. But he does it on his timetable. See, the thing is, we have a different timetable than he does a lot of times. We need to work to adjust our timetable to his, not try to twist his timetable to ours. And we tend to do that. I think of, in the Bible, I think of uh, Mary and Martha and Lazarus. They sit, Mary and Martha said, If you had been here, Lord, my brother wouldn't have died. But in the, in the aftermath of Lazarus' resurrection, many people believed on Jesus Christ. And more than the healing, believing on Jesus Christ was the point. He healed so that people would believe on Him. The Bible says in, at the end of John that many more things did Jesus do that were not written in this book. As a matter of fact, If all the things that he did were written in the books, the earth itself wouldn't hold the books. But these things are written that you might believe on him and that you might have life through his name. So know that these specific events in Jesus' life that are recorded in the book of Luke are written so that you can believe that he is the Son of God. And that he will do what he says he will do. That he will complete the work that he has for you, as it says in Philippians chapter 1. Back to our text. In point three. Jesus raises Jairus' daughter from the dead. Luke 8.50-56. But when Jesus heard it, and I love when it says but in the scriptures, because you know something exciting is about to happen. But when Jesus heard it, He answered him, saying, Fear not, believe only, and she shall be made whole. And when he came into the house, he suffered no man to go in, save Peter, James, and John, and the father and mother of the maiden. And all wept, and bewailed her, her. but he said, Weep not, she is not dead, but sleepeth. And they laughed him to scorn, knowing that she was dead. And he put them all out and took her by the hand and called, saying, Maid, arise. And her spirit came again, and she arose straight away and and commanded her, commanded to give her meat. And her parents were astonished, but he charged them that they should tell no man what was done. So just a few moments previous, the ruler from Jairus' household came and said, your daughter is dead. Don't trouble the master. Imagine if that was the last verse in that chapter. Imagine the sorrow. The wondering of what could have been. Imagine how they were feeling that day because they didn't have the book of Luke before them. They didn't know what was going to happen. But how great it is that we have these remaining verses. And Jesus said, fear not. Jesus said, fear not a lot. Why? Because all these things that we fear as humans, Jesus controls. We still have human suffering and death, but Jesus says, fear not. Why? Because when he died and rose again from the grave, he conquered death. He made an end of sin. So that death is just a temporary reality. And that the life that you live once you have passed away will be a greater life than anything that you've ever lived down here. But Jesus also knows about practical day-to-day needs here on earth. And He goes and He says some interesting things. In verse 52 it says, And all wept and bewailed her, but He said, Weep not, she is not dead, but sleepeth. Now I don't know why He uses these, this phraseology. There are some denominations or rather Cults, I would tend to say, that kind of believe in this idea of soul sleep, that, that you can be sleeping, but not really fully dead. I don't even understand the whole concept. But the Bible indicates death and life, and, and no in-between pattern. No purgatory, no holding ground. But I think Jesus was was mainly speaking of his power over death that because he was the founder of life, because he had breathed into man the breath of life and made him a living soul, that it was to him as if she slept. Because he didn't have to shake her, he didn't have to slap her, he didn't have to do anything major. All he had to do was reach out and touch her hand And say, maid arise, and she came, because the one who can control the wind and the waves also has control of every life, living and dead. And her spirit came again, and she arose straight away and he commanded to give her meat. And her parents were astonished, but he charged them that they should tell no man what was done. Now I I will admit to being a little bit stumped by that last verse. I looked at a, couple, a few different Bible commentaries, and most of them skipped right over this verse, probably because they didn't want to stir up controversy. And I read one which basically said that Jesus wanted people that would follow him for who he was, not just what he could do. Remember in, in John chapter 6, I believe it is, when he feeds the 5,000 and they continue to follow him, he knew in, that in their hearts all they really wanted was another free meal. They didn't really want to make the sacrifice necessary to be his true follower. And so I think that is what he is speaking of. But from a human perspective, it seems kind of strange because obviously if this girl's extended family knows she is dead, when she walks among them again, they will know she is alive. And maybe that's another thing too because it speaks for itself. That's the, that's the great thing about God, is that even though He gives me the privilege to speak for Him, He also speaks for Himself. The Bible says that creation testifies of God to the point where all men are without excuse. The Bible says that if you seek God, you will find Him. If you search for Him with all your heart. Now, this girl was raised from the dead physically, but she would be one of probably a handful of people. Maybe a few more, because we don't know how many people Jesus rose from the dead. I also kind of wonder about the people that rose from the dead after Jesus died and walked through the city, how long they were still around. But regardless, all those people that the Bible talks about rose from the dead would die again. But when Jesus comes back, the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with the Lord in the air. And we're supposed to comfort one another with these words. Why? Because Jesus is saying as the world gets worse, as things get difficult, know that I am still in control. All the unrest we see in the world today. All the the lack of respect that kids have for elders. It's all in the Bible. It was prophesied about hundreds of years before today. God's not surprised. By any it. As we finish up today, I just want to share one cross reference. In Luke chapter 11, verse 40. Luke 11:40. 40. This is referring to another time when Jesus raised him from the dead, Lazarus. Luke 11, verse 40. I might might have had the wrong, wrong discussion here. Yeah, it's the wrong one. Uh, I don't know why I said Luke. Let's try John. John 1140. I had it written down correctly too. I just read it wrong. John 1140. Okay. Jesus said unto her, this is Martha. Said I not unto thee that if thou wouldest believe, thou wouldst see the glory of God. And then let's just skip down to verse 44. And he that was dead. Well, let's start with verse 43. And when he had thus spoken, he, he cried with a loud voice saying, Lazarus, come forth. And he that was dead came forth, bound hand and foot with grave clothes, and his face was bound about with a napkin, Jesus saith unto him, Loose him, and let him go. Jesus called Lazarus by name, and he rose from the dead. He called the maid, the twelve-year-old maid specifically, and she rose from the dead. And these are physical resurrections. question I have for you today is, is he calling you to rise from the dead? Not physically, but spiritually. It says in the Ephesians chapter 2, And you who were dead, hath he quickened. We were dead in trespasses and sins. We had no way to help ourselves. Romans says, Oh, well, we were yet without strength. Christ died for the ungodly. That's me. All you have to do is live with me for a few days, maybe even less than that, and you'll find out how imperfect I am. But I serve a perfect God. I serve a perfect Savior who... Offered to give me his righteousness for my sin. And I took him up on that offer. It's the best trade-in value you will ever get. And I am so grateful for that. I'm going to sing... Number 365 in the Red Book. If anyone wants to join in with me after the first verse, you may do this. And for those of you who may not know the Lord, know that just as He called Jairus' daughter, just as He called Lazarus, He's calling for you today. And He's calling for us who believe Him to have a closer walk with Him.
1: Calling, calling, oh sinner, come home. Why should we tarry when Jesus is pleading, pleading for you and for me? Why? is for
0: Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this song. We thank you that you do call us. You've said in your word that no one comes to you unless the Father draws him. And so we thank you for that. We also thank you that whoever comes to you, you will in no wise cast out. Lord, I pray that you would um, have your way in each of us as individuals and then corporately as the body of Christ. Lord, I pray that you'd be with each individual here at the Howling Gospel Chapel that they would, um, if they have already committed to you, that they would recommit to following you more earnestly, that they would find their strength in you, that they wouldn't look elsewhere for it, but that they would ask you for help and wisdom, because you give it freely. I pray that you would be with them throughout the week and the month to come. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.